Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You for the blessing of being able to be in the house of the Lord. We know that our times are in Your hand. And we thank You for watching over and keeping us loving us, putting us in Christ before the world began. And that our salvation from beginning to end and everything in between is of You. And even as we sung destined to behold thy face. As John said, we know not what we shall be, but we know that we shall be like the Lord Jesus and that we shall see Him as He is. From time to time we give thought to the locality of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. We give thought of what it would be like to see Him seated on the throne encircled with the rainbow and all the angelic host bowing down unto You, crying, Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. Sometimes it seems as if You pull the curtain back just a tad and we get a peek and yet that too is indescribable. Nevertheless, we're not talking about cunningly devised fables. We're talking about our Lord who was seen, who was heard, who was handled. It was called the Word of Life as He tabernacled here upon this earth. We pray that You would be in our service and bless the little ones to be able to be still and know that You're God and that the the parents will be able to... uh, attain more of the worship than otherwise might. We thank You for uh, the expected child that is soon to be delivered and pray that mother and child would be healthy in every respect. Yes, our times are in Your hand. 
And we thank you, our God, in Jesus' name, amen. We come back to our study of First <clears throat> John, and we will, uh, unless the Lord directs otherwise, but we'll wrap up our uh, introduction this morning upon the Gospel of John. As we left off last Lord's Day, we gave this summary with regard to uh, the subject matter <coughs> of the Gospel, I mean the Epistle. In other words, this Epistle is, uh, there's several subject matters and I guess the main one that stands out is knowledge. Knowledge. If there's anything, any one word that would sum up First John, it would be the word knowledge. The English word know, known, knoweth, and think, knew, and things of that nature. The English word uh, is found 39 times in 39 verses. The other word for know, which is perceive, or see, or behold, those words are, of course, three times. And so you can see that 42 times in this epistle, it's giving us information that we're to know things about God and particularly to know that we are children of God. <coughs> I think I pointed this out last Lord's Day. I'll do it again. I don't know that I have it on my introductory outline at anymore, but you remember 1 John 5 and 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. Notice, this epistle is written to believers. And the Gospel of John was written to believers. You see that in chapter 20 of John, the last two verses. But here we're looking, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that you have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. In other words, he's writing to believers that they might know that they have eternal life, and that they might, as the uh, the verb tense bears out, keep on believing. The Gospel of John and the first epistle of John were written from the standpoint of believers and encouraging them to believe. But you can see the Greek word, I mean the English word, no, is used, as we said, uh, 42 times. 42 times. Now there are two 
Greek words that are translated no in this epistle. Basically, and, uh, and, and they're so close that it's almost hard to distinguish between the two. One is called gnosko. And that word is used 224 times in the New Testament, but it's used 25 times in 1 John. And 24 of those times is translated no, one time perceive. The other word is ido. I know this doesn't mean anything to you, but I give the two pronunciations so you'll know that we're talking about two different words. <laughs> and ido is used uh, 669 times in the New Testament, basically called to see, but it's used 17 times in 15 verses in 1 John. The definitions that are given for these two words, the first word, gnosko, is to learn to know. To come to know, to get knowledge of, to perceive or feel. To know, to understand, perceive, have knowledge of. It's also used in the Scriptures uh, to have the idea of uh, sexual uh, intimacy, you know, for whom God did foreknow. It's the same idea when Mary said, uh, how can this thing be seeing I know not a man? And so it's used that way. And it's idea to become acquainted with, to know. I never will forget now, this is kindly a side note. Uh, my brother-in-law, before he was married, was visiting here, and he was visiting with Brother Copeland. And uh, Rick asked Brother Copeland, said, uh, "What? What? Uh, you have any advice to give?" Uh, a young man that uh, before he gets married and everything and Brother Copeland said uh, I forget everything that he said but he uh, kindly summed it up this way that he never let himself be acquainted with any other woman than his wife I like the way that he said that acquainted with any other woman other than his wife and I thought of that when I saw this, one of the definitions for this word, gnosko. The other one, ido, uh, carries basically the idea to see or to perceive with the eyes, to perceive by any of the senses, or to perceive, notice, discern, and, and so on, and it suggests the idea of fullness of knowledge. It suggests the idea of fullness of knowledge. We'll see this uh, more in particularly as we go forward. Uh, 
Weist. Uh, I don't doubt, I, uh, Brother Benjamin may know of Weist. But uh, in his expository dictionary of New Testament words, said that the differences between gnosko and ido demands consideration. Gnosko frequently suggests inception of knowledge in progress, while ido suggests fullness of knowledge. Fullness of knowledge. And he gives the example of the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 55. We'll turn there for just a moment. John 8, 55. Yet ye have not known Him, but I know Him. Talking about Jesus knows God. And if I should say I know Him not, I shall be a liar like unto you, but I know Him and keep His sayings. I know Him and keep His sayings. In other words, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you don't know Him, but I know Him. And so we see that in that verse. And in that verse where He says, Ye have not known Him, that word is gnosko. But in the rest of the verse where it says, But I know Him, and if I should say, I know Him not, I shall be a liar like unto you, but I know him and keep his sayings. Those last three is Ido. So you can see that Ido has a more uh, intense understanding than Gnosko, though they're both uh, a lot of times used interchangeably. And it should be obvious that Christ's knowledge of the Father is far more intimate and richer than anything uh, man could come up with. <clears throat> uh, for this distinction, uh, I want to give a couple of other passages. One is in John chapter 4. John 4 and in 39, I believe. I made such a small note there. Verse 39, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on Him for the saying of the woman which testified, He told me all that ever I did. It's used, but then drop down to verse 42, And said unto the woman, in other words, these... Uh, well, let's just, uh, let's just keep reading to get the context. So when the Samaritans were coming to him, verse 40, 
They besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And said unto the woman, Now we believe not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. The word know there is Ido. In other words, they said, Now we believe, not because we heard you talk, but because we heard the, uh, the Lord ourselves. And then in John chapter 10, John 10, Verses 4 and 5. Here we see the use of Ido. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of the stranger. And this is the same word that's used in Second uh, Timothy one twelve, where Paul said, "I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded. I know whom I have believed." Now I'm going to give a an example that may help to show the difference between. Gnosko and Ido from a natural standpoint. By reading books, I know, that is, I have Gnosko knowledge, by reading books, that electricity will shock me. And that amps are far more critical than votes. I can learn that by reading books. However, I know by experience, I do, working with electricity and being shocked either by 120 or 220 votes in the house or working on a lawnmower, typically with 20,000 to 30,000 votes, for a small engine or a car, depending on the ignition system and the type, then you know that you can get the shock of your life in many ways, <clears throat> and uh, 110 uh, might not hurt as much as a lawnmower. It has to do with uh, the amps rather than the volts and the way the electricity is. But you can see that <clears throat> you can learn one way by reading the books. You get the Gnosko. But the when you get the shock and you feel it itself, yourself, then you have a more intimate knowledge of what it's all about. So hopefully that might help in your study, if you come across and look up the words uh, and try to figure out the difference, like I say, sometimes it's so close 
it's just uh, almost uh, impossible to find the difference. So that's one purpose. That's one reason for writing the book. The subject matter having to do with knowledge. Another subject matter that's found somewhat in the book is commandment versus law. The Greek word commandment is used 14 times in the epistle, but the, English, but the word for law is found two times. And it's found in First uh, John 3, 4, where it talks about, For whosoever committeth sin transgresseth the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Well, transgression of the law there is really the Greek word for law with the alpha privative put on the front of it. You know what we talk about by the alpha privative? If I say I'm going somewhere, then uh, that's going in one direction. But if I talk about something that I go, that would what's behind me, not in front of me. Law is the word namos. Anomia is against the law, the opposite of the law, or transgression or lawlessness. But there's much written about keeping the commandments of God And it's also talking about, and we'll get to that when we get to chapter 2, where John said, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment. And then he says in the next verse, a new commandment I give to you. So we're going to have to try to uh, put some distinction between those two. Another subject matter that we will cover in this epistle is love. Loving God versus the world or loving God and His people versus the world. And we're going to see that if you really love God, you will love the people of God. There's no exception to the rule. There's no exception to the rule. And we'll see that. And it's basically around this English word, uh, love is found 33 times in 23 verses in this epistle. And it's either the word agape or agapao, which is basically called the highest form of love. And the verb is used the most. You know, see, you remember that the word love can be a noun or verb. But in this epistle, it's used, and I think maybe throughout the New Testament, I, uh, but it, the word love is more a verb than a noun. So what's the difference? That means there's action. 
You cannot have love without action. And I'll give, go back to John, excuse me, Matthew chapter 5, which I've given this illustration uh, more than once with regard to love. And uh, we need to make this plain again. In Matthew 5, verse 43, taken up in verse 43. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good. And sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love them which love you. What reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. You say, well now, how can I love my enemy? You treat them justly. And you do good to them if need be. In other words, if your next door neighbor is an enemy to you, and he uh, falls and hurts himself, then you should do everything you can to help him medically and physically. You don't let him lie in the street. You don't turn your back and walk away. You don't say, well, he got what he deserved. You show your love toward him. You show your love toward him. I hesitate to use this example I've used it so much, uh, but I, I want to use it again. Uh, several years ago when I was pastoring with Brother Guest at Grace Chapel, we had some young men there that were thought they were called to preach. Some of them thought they were. And so we let them teach some lessons and things of that nature and one man got up one night. Y'all probably already know the story. But uh, anyway, people out there on the internet need to hear it. He got up one night and he preached and taught an excellent lesson on love. Excellent. But uh, one of the deacons, after the end of the service, said, asked for the men to meet in the fellowship hall afterward. And he brought to our attention that there was a man in the congregation that was 
on financial hard times and uh, about to lose his house for lack of a house payment. And he wondered if we could maybe just dig in, dig in our own pockets and not have to uh, dig into the treasury of the congregation and come up with uh, money to meet the house payment, which uh, the Lord blessed us to do that. But this young man that had taught an excellent lesson on love said, I'm not going to help him. He got himself into that. He can get himself out. In other words, he said, he get, he's getting what he deserves. Well, he, he wasn't even showing love to a, a supposed brother, much less an enemy. And if you've got a neighbor whom you know that might be your enemy, <coughs> not that he's just a lazy man, but he happened to fall on hard times. And if the community were trying to raise some money to help him, we ought to help. We ought to help. You say, well, I, I, I just, I just, I just can't do that. Then you need to check your heart with God. You need to check your heart with God. Well, we'll see more about that as we go on. But here you can see in Matthew five, love is a verb. It's not a noun. It's not a feeling. It's not a feeling, it's an action. And you've heard me give this before, I'll give it again. John 3.16, For God so loved that He gave. Paul said, Christ loved me and gave Himself for me. Christ loved the ecclesia and gave Himself for it. Love is manifested more as an action, a verb rather than a, a noun. And you children, you want to know that you love mama and daddy? You can see that as how you obey them and do what they say. You say, well, I, if they tell you to do something, well, I don't like doing that. It's not a matter of whether you like it or not. It's just a matter of doing it. Out of respect to mom and daddy. You see, Christianity is not just something that we soak up on Sunday morning and as we hear a sermon, it's a seven-day week lifestyle. But we'll see more about love as we go throughout First uh, John, I will. Well, there is another word that's used that's related to the other word for agapo, uh, uh, agape. I mean, and it's aga, uh, agapetos. 
but it's only used uh, two or three times. Regarding this, I'm going to read from Pink Pink's introduction with regarding to First John, and listen to what he says about this idea of love. I thought this was good. Much is said about love, and nowhere is a spirit of charity more admirably and forcibly inculcated. But there are also a bold outspokenness and sternness which make us shrink. The love enjoined is far from being a sickly sentiment or effeminate weakness being a holy grace, which instead of preventing faithful rebuke and severe denunciation, promotes them. Such verses as one five two twenty two three eight and ten and fifteen four twenty five ten. We won't take the time to stop and look at those. We hear the voice of the Son of Thunder vehemently against every insult to the majesty of the Lord. It is ostensibly written to promote assurance in the saints. 5.13, which we've already looked at today. Yet nowhere else in the Word are we so often called upon to close self-examination, and unsparing testing of ourselves. This epistle might well be termed a touchstone by which we may discern between the genuine gold and the counterfeit. It frequently utters the language of confidence, yet as often uses that which is discriminating. As Spurgeon well said, the apostle mingles caution with caress and qualifies the most smooth, uh, soothing consolation with such stern warnings that in well near every sentence he constrains us to deep searching of heart. And then lastly, the subject matter, one of the subject matters, and there are many others, is belief versus faith. Belief, pistuo, which is a verb, is found ten times in seven verses. Faith, which is a noun, is only found once in 1 John. I want to look at these seven verses quickly. 1 John 3 and 23. Just read them. And this is His commandment that we should believe on the name of of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us commandment. 
4.1 Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Verse 16 of the fourth chapter. And we have known and believed the, believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. He that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in Him. Chapter 5, verse 1, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth Him that begat loveth Him also that is begotten of Him. Verse 5, Who is he that overcometh the world but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? Verse 10, He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And then verse 13, which we've already read, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God or continue to believe. Now, in summary of this epistle, I'm going to impose on your kindness and read a lengthy quote from Pink again about the overallness of this book, as well as read another one from uh, Robert Candish. That his epistle is, this is Pete, by the way, that his epistle is an intensely practical one is evidenced in many ways. For example, not once in the word knowledge, excuse me, not once is the word knowledge found in the form of a noun, but always as a verb. The same is true of faith. (coughs) Excuse me. He almost invariably uses the verbal form. With John's John's doctrine is not mere dogma, but faith in action. Truth is not merely a theory, but an energy which lives and moves in the new life. There is scarcely any strict doctrinal teaching and very few direct exhortations. It is mainly the vital experimental side of things, and thus it is that the line of demarcation and separation is so sharply and often drawn between genuine and graceless professors. Not to discourage believers, but to inform and safeguard them against being deceived and imposed upon John did far more than deal with forms of error which were local and ephemeral, refuting those of his day in the manner by which he he enunciated principles of universal importance and of almost illimitable applications equally suited to the exposure of error in every age. 
It is remarkable how many different top topics are introduced into this brief letter. So that we're almost justified to say with J. Morgan, uh, I did look him up. He's, uh, uh, I forgot, I think he lived in the 1800s. J. Morgan said, The whole realm of evangelical truth is transversed by, this, by the apostle. End of quote of Morgan. Pink continues, Blessed it is to see how the balance of truth is preserved there. No one would regard it as a theological treatise. Yet most of the fundamentals of our faith are briefly set forth in it. The Divine Incarnation, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The Nature of God, chapter 1, verse 5, chapter 4, and verse 8. The Atonement and Advocacy of Christ, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. The Person and Work of the Holy Spirit, chapter 3, verse 24. Regeneration, 2.29. The Trinity, 5.7, etc. The Epistle is far from being an appeal to emotionalism. Yet it bids believers, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. 3.1 And while affording no encouragement to rest upon feelings, as its repeated dogmatic we know shows, in other words, him constantly saying we know, we know, we know, by him saying that continually shows that we're not resting on feelings. Yet it is written that, quote, our joy may be full, end of quote. While it is not a discourse on humanitarianism, it stresses practical altruism, John 3, verses 17 and 18. Though not a discussion of eschatology, yet the return of Christ, 2.28, and the day of judgment, 4.17, are mentioned. Thus, this epistle supplies an admirable corrective to one-sided views of the Christian life. And that's from Pink's introduction on 1 John. Robert Candish said, I speak of the theological and exegetical study of it. And I do so advisedly, for I am deeply convicted after years of thought about it that it can be studied aright exegetically only when it is studied theologically. Of course, I do not mean that a cut-and-dry creed accepted beforehand is to rule or overrule the critical and grammatical interpretation of the ascertained text. But I think no one is competent to deal in detail with this wonderful book who is not familiar with the evangelical system as a whole and able, therefore, to appreciate the bearings of John's line of thought in connection with it. I do not speak of the higher qualification of spiritual mindedness. I make this remark simply as a theologian and an expositor. And that's from Candice's preface of his first edition. 
and in reading Candice and Pink, uh, sometimes makes me wonder why I even started taking up the, to study the epistle to preach through it. But nevertheless, uh, God willing, we shall do so. And we'll start looking into the epistle per se uh, this afternoon, Lord willing. Let's pray. Our Father, as we contemplate the profundity of this book, we are made to be reminded not only the epistle of 1 John, but the whole of the Scriptures. So often we come to them lightly, reading passages that we are well familiar with by rote. But I pray that You would help us to be more mindful as we endeavor to try to uncover some golden nuggets in this epistle to help the saint to know that he has eternal life, that he might keep on walking in the way We pray, our God, that You would bless us to hide the Word in our hearts, that we not sin against Thee. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.